You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Right now, we are living in what sociologists and psychologists are calling a happiness crisis. That's the term uh, that's plaguing our culture. And if you just want to test me on this, you can go home and Google America and happiness, those two words, um, and just start scrolling, and you will see article after article where social experts are talking about how happiness is dramatically declining in our culture. Let me just give you a, a, a teaser of what I'm talking about give you a basic idea of it. These are um, just titles of some of the articles and some of the research that's come out, some of the reports. If we can put it on the screen. Uh, This is uh, taken from the World Happiness Report, which is an actual thing that comes out every year. Um, The article is titled, The Sad State of Happiness in the United States and the Role of Digital Media. That's that's like a whole sermon in and of itself. This next one's from NBC News. um, Quote, Americans are the unhappiest they've been in 50 years. Uh, the Washington Post, um, again, this is just do a simple Google church search. All this will pop up for you. Washington Post, Americans are the unhappiest they've ever been. UN report finds an epidemic of addictions could be to blame. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Here's another one title. America, desperate for happiness, is getting less and less happy. This one from the New York Times. This came out last week. Um, there's a new emotion that psychologists, a new term for a new emotion that they're, they're talking about. There's a name for the blah you're feeling. It's called languishing. The neglected middle child of mental health can dull our motivation and focus. And check this out. It may be the dominant emotion of 2021. The article goes on to define languishing. We can put this on the screen as, quote, Feeling a feeling of joylessness and aimlessness, a sense of stagnation and emptiness. Um, I've been there. Um, let me give you one more. Uh, that's the dominant emotion, by the way, of 2021, languishing. Here's, here's the last one. It kind of sums it all up. Record unhappiness reigns as Americans think something has gone awry in the United States. And I think that pretty much sums it up. Something indeed has gone awry in the U.S. Something something has gone wrong. Here's how I know that. You rewind the clock, this whole big social experiment called America was actually built around this core idea of life, liberty, and the pursuit of what? Happiness. Well, we're in a happiness crisis. So... It's, it's all like our whole, the whole country is built around this idea that these are the inalienable rights of every human being that have been given to us by our creator. And the founding fathers bake that into the constitution and into the declaration because they want to protect those rights and they want to create a culture where humanity can flourish and experience the happiness that we're made for and that we long for. The problem, the crisis moment we're having now is the further, the, the, the longer our country exists, the further and further away we get from that vision and from seeing that vision become a reality. Let's get into the weeds for a second on some of the stats. 
So the World Happiness Report says that right now the U.S. has dropped in the rankings for the third straight year and is now the 19th happiest nation on earth. That's America's worst showing ever. Uh, TV personality Jimmy Kimmel actually weighed in on this. Here's what Jimmy said. Um, we finished 19th on the list behind Belgium. The people who feel the need to put mayonnaise on their French fries are happier than we are. Cheer up, everybody. Um, these people are putting mayonnaise on their French fries just to have something to enjoy. And Jimmy Kimmel's like, we're not, we're not as happy as they are. We've fallen behind Belgium here. So something's wrong. There's a problem. Um, just 14% of adults in the United States say they are very happy. That's down from 31% who said they were very happy in last year's report. Uh, hope for the future is declining. Uh, I'm sorry, by the way, if you came in expecting to feel good. Like, <laughs> we're going to talk about joy in a moment, but like, we got to talk about reality first, okay? Um, only 42% of people right now say they believe that when their children reach their age, their quality of life and standard of living will be better. Um, we're, we're seeing less optimism and hope for the future. In addition, uh, loneliness, depression, suicidal ideation, self-harm, addiction, and addictive behaviors have, quote, increased sharply, end quote, in just the last decade. So we are experiencing a happiness crisis that's plaguing our culture, and the whole world is talking about it. Now, to, to bring it out of the realm of stats and theory and quotes and all that for, for a second, I'm guessing that if you're anything like I am, you don't need a global report to tell you that we're living in a happiness crisis because you're living it. You don't need, you don't need the stats because your experience verifies that happiness seems to be a place that's hard to get to. And when you do get there, the goalpost moves and now I'm not happy anymore. Anybody else experience that or am I the only one? Feel a little less lonely. Um, the rest of you are lying. Like this is the, this is the way it is for us. Um, we're, some, some of you, some of you right now come into this space and you are, your disapp- disappointment is your, you, you feel the pain of disappointment because what you wanted in life, you don't have. Seniors uh, who, who are here or, or students who are not quite seniors yet, like you need to understand that I know you've already suffered in life because to be human is to suffer. But when you get into your life, like post high school and all, the, all that stuff, and you get into marriage and family and career and all that, uh, nothing ever goes the way you want it to, ultimately. You're going to get hit with curveball after curveball, uh, the death of dreams and unmet expectations. And I'm not trying to be Debbie Downer. Like there's a ton of, we're going to get into the joy. There's good news. All, but I'm also just saying like, this is life. So some of you like feel the pain of disappointment. Some of you are battling incredible loss, financial loss, the death of a dream, the end of a good season in your life, the death of people that you love. And, and you don't have what it is you want, which means that you don't, you're not happy with that. And I get it. I get it. Just this week, um, this happens to me all the time. Just this week, um, you know, I had uh, both of our cars 
died and went into the shop, which is a first world problem, but it's also a massive inconvenience. And then I got the bill for it. And I wasn't very happy about that. And then I wasn't very happy by the fact that when we got my wife's car out of the, out of the shop, we drove it for two days and it died again and wouldn't start. And I had to have it towed back to the shop where it still is right now at this moment. And I don't know when I'm going to get it back. So she doesn't have a car. I still don't have a car. So we're borrowing a car. And my wife will tell you that all week I was not a very happy person. It's not a very pleasant person. And, and like when my car died, I, I, you know, I've maybe said a few choice words. I don't know. I mean, I wasn't very happy when, when I, but I literally, when her car died, I went from singing zippity doodah to like rage and anxiety. My, my happiness was just gone. So why, like, I think all this raises a question for me. Okay. This is the question I've been, that's been cooking in me all week. And I think if you're self-aware, this is the question that's cooking inside of you. The question is, if I'm hardwired for happiness, if that's my unalienable right to pursue happiness, if God created me for that, why is it so stinking hard to find? Why is it that when I do find it and I grasp it and I hold on to it, it wiggles out of my hands and it's gone? And I think the deeper question underneath that, that we're really asking is, is there anything that exists that can actually satisfy my desire to be happy? Is there anything out there that that can give me the true and lasting happiness that I long for? Well, this is the question that Paul invites us to step into in Galatians chapter 5. So this is what I want to talk about. Are you guys with me? Let's go to Galatians chapter 5. Look at verse 22. Now, last week, we focused on the word love. This week, we're going to focus on the second word in Paul's list. Here's what he says. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. Now, keep your eye on that word for a second. Just put your finger on that word and hold it, because here's the first thing I want you to notice. Paul doesn't use the word happiness, does he? That's that's intriguing to me. Right out, right out, of, the, out of the gates... Um, there is a Greek word for happiness that Paul could have used. So Paul could have said, the fruit of the Spirit is happiness. But that's not what he says. He says the fruit of the Spirit is what? Joy. Joy. So right away, I'm asking a question here as I look at the text. I'm going, hmm, what's the difference, I wonder, between happiness and joy? Because in our vocabulary, we use them interchangeably, but they're actually two different words in the language of the New Testament. And Paul uses one, and he doesn't use the other. So what's the difference? Well, let me give you some definitions, okay? Here's happiness. Happiness is a good feeling based on getting what you want and having external circumstances work out to your liking. Joy, on the other hand, is a good feeling in the soul, that endures regardless of external circumstances, a kind of inner strength and hope that sustains you through the darkest and most difficult moments of life. So there's the difference. Happiness is situational. It's about getting what you want. Joy is something that sustains you regardless of your circumstances, even when life doesn't give you what you want, which is typically the way life works. 
And there's so many great thinkers throughout human history that have written about the difference distinguishing between joy and happiness. But let me just give you one quote. It's kind of lengthy. So buckle up, lean in. This is Andrew Schwab. He wrote a book called The Ten Soldier, which is aimed primarily at men. He argues that men are the most unhappy creatures on planet earth. Wives are like, tell me about it, right? So can't, can't do anything to satisfy this guy. Well, here's what Schwab says about the difference between happiness and joy. Quote, when you boil it down, happiness is a form of contentment that is the result of circumstances working out in your favor. It's a magical balance of satisfaction. It's like fairy tale stuff of satisfaction and glee that results when life goes the way we want it to. The problem is happiness is based upon things that are ultimately outside of our control. Though we may have seasons of happiness in our lives, trying to be happy as a destination, as a permanent residence, is a precarious goal at best. Why? Because circumstance cannot be trusted. Amen? As soon as we think life has finally gone our way, a close friend gets into a car accident or a relative develops cancer, financial disaster strikes, etc., fill in the blank, then what? The happy state of being we fought so desperately for deserts us again, and we realize we are once again dissatisfied. It's like investing in a friendship with a fun but ultimately fickle friend. You know the type. When the times are good, you have a blast. You share inside jokes, you party together, you create memories. But when life gets real and you need someone to get in the mud with you, they are nowhere to be found. So it is with happiness. Happiness is not going to get in the mud with you. Joy, however, is something entirely different than happiness. Even though the two terms are often used synonymously, joy is a state of the soul that has nothing to do with circumstance. Joy defeats the sorrow we are promised to face in this life, no matter how dark and insurmountable those moments may seem to be. Therefore, joy is something that is possible to have in every season of life. Check this out. And it's, it's greater than even our most pleasant days, even our most perfect circumstances. So he closes with this. Happiness is circumstantial. Joy, on the other hand, is transcendent, supernatural, and therefore far superior. We live in a culture. Here's the, you want to know the root of our happiness crisis. It's all finally catching up to us. We live in a culture that's not built on joy, but it's built on this idea, this definition of happiness that we're pursuing. And never can never get there. It's what Max Lucado actually calls this contingent joy. And I'm not going to read the quote because I got too many quotes and the sermon's too long. Um, so, but here, here's what Paul here's what Paul's inviting us to see is about, about contingent or circumstantial joy. What he wants us to see in this passage when he says the fruit of the spirit is real, authentic joy is he's saying happiness and joy are two different things. And contingent joy, the kind of contingent joy that the American dream is built on, is a counterfeit joy. Contingent joy is a counterfeit joy. It sometimes smells like the real thing. It sometimes tastes like the real thing. It sometimes looks like the real thing. But it's an echo of the real thing. And here's what Paul wants us to see, okay? If your life is built on contingent joy... And the chase, the rat race of situational happiness, you can be gratified 
but you will never be satisfied. You can be filled, but you will never be fulfilled. You can have happiness that is fleeting, but you will never have joy that lasts. Happiness is the house built on sand. It's always one storm away from falling. Like right, the whole deck of cards, just one gust of wind and it's, it's, it's slips from your fingertips. Joy is the house built on a rock. It's like no matter what life throws at you, no matter how hard it rains or how big the waves or the storms of life that slam it, there's a foundation that holds it all together and nothing can take that joy away from you. This is the fruit of the Spirit that God wants to produce in your life. Now, it's also the thing that we want deeper. Like our surface level desire is for happiness. Our deeper desire is for joy. That being said, I think this raises three questions for us that I want to ask and then we're done. Okay. Three really important questions. Number one, well, where do we get this joy? Where does it come from? Number two, um, why do we struggle to experience this joy? Why is it so difficult to, 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 to experience? Number three, how do we cultivate this kind of joy in our life? You guys with me? In the time we have left, I want to just work through and answer each of these questions. All right. First question, if you're taking notes, where do we find this kind of joy? Where does it come from? Paul answers that question. Notice the, the way he phrases this because he does it on purpose. Verse 22 of Galatians 5, the fruit of the spirit. Like if I could, I would italicize that on the screen to emphasize it. The fruit of the spirit is joy. So as people who spend our whole lives looking for joy, pay attention and don't miss this. Where does Paul say joy originates? According to this verse, where does it come from? It's the Spirit's joy. It's not our joy. It's the Spirit's joy. It's the Spirit's fruit that He produces in our lives. So here's the application. Right here, here it is, right here. I mean, some of you have already beat me to this, but let me say it out loud for us. The joy you're longing for is not found in the stuff of earth. It's not found in getting what you want. It's not found in your circumstances. The joy that you're looking for, the real joy, is found only exclusively in the presence of God and God alone. That's it. The psalmist says it like this. David says it like this in Psalm 1611. We'll put this on the screen. You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy, not a little joy, overflowing joy. Now check this out. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's just stop right here for a second. Let's drill down on this for just a second. If all joy and all pleasure originates with God, if he's the source, what does that tell us the God of the Bible is like? It says that he's eternally, supremely, the most supremely happy, truly happy, most joyful being who could ever exist. And I feel sad as I say that. The reason I feel sad as I say that because so many of us grow up in a church tradition and a church culture that doesn't have this view of God. We grow up in a lot of church traditions and church cultures where God has his finger on the trigger and he's a hair trigger dad who's angry and unstable and anxious and you got to walk on eggshells around him and keep all the rules or he's going to blow up, right? So then Christianity and following Jesus gets reduced down to, I better make sure I believe all the right stuff and my doctrine's in order and, I, and I'm also doing all the right things or God is not 
happy with me. Nothing could be further from the truth. He's eternally happy. And when Jesus, he is, he is joy. And in Jesus, joy puts on flesh and steps into our world and breaks into our world. And guess what? When Jesus comes to planet Earth, he doesn't come with a list of, of rules to say, you know what, guys, my dad, whew, uh, make sure you do all this right and my dad will be, will be happy with you. I, listen, I've been walking on eggshells around him for all eternity. It's, you just gotta manage him. Don't tick him off. Just if you do all these, no. When Jesus hits the scene, it's announced to us as good news of great what? Nuh-uh. Good news of great what? Joy. For how many people? For all people, Luke says in Luke chapter 2. Here, Listen to me right now. Here's, right, if you don't hear anything else, you've got to hear this, what I'm saying. Christianity, following Jesus, your discipleship. If you're on the fence of what, what's Christianity really all about, or if you've been in it for a long time and you've been duped, about what it's about, listen to me. It's not fundamentally about believing all the right stuff and doing all the right stuff. It's an invitation into the divine love of God, which is the essence of joy. It's good news of great joy. And, and in Christ, Jesus, Jesus, let, let me, let me read it to you like this. I just, this is Joni Erickson Tata. She says it better than I could say it anyway. Here's what she says. One of my favorite quotes. God, we might say, is in a good mood. He's not depressed. He's not misery-seeking company. He's not some bitter cosmic Neanderthal with his finger on a nuclear weapon waiting for you to mess up. God is joy spilling over. This is where his mercy comes from. The full tank of his love that he enjoys is splashing out over heaven's walls. He swims in elation and is driven to share it with us. Why? She quotes Jesus in John 15 11, simply as he put, so that my joy may be in you. You want to know why Jesus came? Gee, the whole reason Jesus says it in John 15, he says it in John 17. The whole reason he came is to put the joy of God in you so that his joy will be your joy and your joy will be complete. There it is on the screen, out of the mouths of our Lord. That's why Jesus came. And here's what's amazing, to put the joy of God in you, he has put his spirit in you. If, if, if the fullness of joy is in the presence of God, Jesus has taken the presence of God and somehow, mystically, mysteriously, put it inside of you. So the spirit and the source of all joy, if you're in Christ, lives in you. Now, I got a couple of amens. You want to know why I didn't get very many? I do this because I get tired preaching. I'm sorry. But like, you want to know why I didn't get very many? Because some of you have Baptist hands and Baptist mouths. You don't know how to praise the Lord. You don't know how to do, you don't know how to do this. Okay. You don't know how to say hallelujah. I grew up that way. So I get it. I'm a recovering that. Okay. So, but, but for some of you, the reason why you didn't amen it and get jazzed and flip out and revival didn't break out. When I said God put the spirit of joy in you, that you have the fullness of joy in you that nothing can take from you. The reason that you didn't freak out and praise is because if we're honest, we don't feel the joy. You're telling me, Adam, that God has put the spirit of joy inside of me? That, well, I don't, I don't, I'm a disciple of Jesus. I really am. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a phony, churchy Christian person. Like I've, I've got the spirit, and yet I'm languishing with a sense of joylessness and emptiness. And I don't feel, 
I don't feel it. Which, like, that's my life, okay? For me, that's my life. It's your life. It's the Christian experience. It brings us to our second question. Why is experiencing this joy such a fight for us? If God has given us, if Jesus has put his joy in us, put the spirit of joy in us, who's going to bear the fruit, why, why do I struggle? To, why is it a fight to feel the fruit? Well, good question. I'm glad you asked. Because earlier in Galatians 5, Paul has already answered this question for us about why it's such a fight for us to experience this joy. Paul says there is literally a fight taking place in your soul between the spirit and something he calls the flesh. Remember this from a couple of weeks ago? We talked about how there's a war waging inside of us. Galatians 5, 16 and 17. The two are in conflict. One wants one thing, one wants another thing, and they're fighting against one another. We defined the flesh a couple of weeks ago like this. The flesh is your sinful nature. It's the part of you that is bent on self-protection and doing life apart from God because it's too afraid and too prideful to trust. So right, right here, here, you want to know why it's such a fight to experience it? Because the Spirit of God wants joy for you. But here's what the flesh knows. See, the flesh is not, not, the flesh is not stupid. The flesh will never, ever reach for the fruit of joy because the flesh knows that joy is found in God and the flesh can't trust God. So when the darkness comes, when the unexpected bill comes, when that text or that phone call comes, when the, de- when the news of devastation comes, the flesh in you will never reach for the joy of the Spirit deep down inside of you because the flesh doesn't trust the spirit. The flesh will always reach for something counterfeit. Let me say it this way to stay with Paul's metaphor. The flesh will never reach for the fruit of joy. It will always reach for the low-hanging fruit of whatever numbs me and satisfies me in the moment. It'll never reach for lasting satisfaction. It'll always reach for instant gratification. You look at... um. Talk to plant geneticists. I've got a good friend, Cody George, who's a plant geneticist and expert. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. But you talk to orchard owners and uh, fruit pickers and, and all these people, and they'll, what they'll tell you is that the low-hanging fruit is good, okay? The low-hanging fruit is good. It's not like it's bad, but it's not as good as the higher fruit because it's just common sense. The higher fruit gets more sunlight. It gets, it gets, uh, you know, more light, more nutrients, and so therefore it's more delectable, it's more, it's, it's, it's ripe, it's more delicious, it's more nutritious, it's more satisfying. So if you're a fruit picker or an orchard owner, you always go for the higher fruit first. You let the lower fruit develop. You always pick the higher fruit. Listen, I'm way out of my discipline. Fruit, fruit science is not my discipline. Uh, the Bible is, and I'm just working with Paul's metaphor here. Here's the point. Your flesh, this is, this is why, to come back to the question, this is why it's a fight for joy. Your flesh will never pick the higher fruit. It will always go after the low-hanging fruit. What's the quick fix? What is the quickest way to numb the pain? What is the quickest way to soothe the ache, the disappointment, the abandonment, the fear, the shame that I carry, uh, the loneliness? What is the disappointment? What's the... Am I making my point? Now, here's what's really tricky. Stay with me. Listen to me. You want to know how the flesh gets, gets its hooks in and how it, how it robs you of joy? It's real tricky. 
Nine times out of ten, the, the low-hanging fruit is not really bad stuff. It's really good stuff that the flesh reaches for and attaches to. And we miss out. That what happens then is we reach for the good stuff and we, we miss the better stuff. And Jim Collins is famous for saying, good is the enemy of great. This is how it happens. It's not bad as the enemy of great. It's good as the enemy of great. So the flesh will reach for and attach to really good stuff that God has given us. And we fall in love with the good gifts God has given us instead of the giver himself. Who gave us those things? It's very, very subtle and it's scary. John Piper can say it better than I could ever say it. So here's what Piper says. He sums it up like this. The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of, trivia, dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, he's going to quote Jesus here in Luke 14. What keeps us from the love of God? Jesus says it's a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. The gifts of God. The, most, uh, the greatest adversary of, of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry, hang on to that word, we're going to come back to that. The idolatry is scarcely recognizable. Here's what's scary. It's almost incurable. The reason it's almost incurable is because if you're out doing hard drugs and doing some illegal stuff and like jumping into the arms of people you're not married to, uh, you're pretty aware that that's broken and messed up and that that's not going to lead to life, liberty, and happiness. Everybody knows that. You don't even need Jesus to know that. Everybody knows that. But when you're like dulling your appetite for joy on the endless simple pleasures of this earth, the Bible has a word for that and it likens it to falling asleep. You've become, we've become comfortably numb. And Piper says, when you get in that place, it's almost incurable because you keep going to church and you keep doing all the right stuff, but you're asleep. You're actually, you don't need alcohol to be drunk. Like Paul, all through the New Testament, Paul talks about being sober-minded and he ain't even talking about alcohol. We're drunk on the simple pleasures of earth, the low-hanging fruit that the flesh will always reach for. Food, drink, games, clothing, money, sex, family, friendship, job, career, education, Netflix, the church even. All good gifts from a good God. And here's the way it's designed to work. God gave us all this good stuff. He put us in a garden, gave us all this good stuff to enjoy. Go out and enjoy it to the fullest. And it's all designed to draw our hearts deeper into the divine love of God. Jonathan Edwards, the great Jonathan Edwards, says it like this. He says, The simple pleasures of earth are but shadows. God is the substance. They are but scattered beams. God is the sun. They are but streams. God is the ocean. So here's how it's supposed to work. Summer's coming up, right? I love watermelon. Raise your hand if you love watermelon. Come on. They got some amens in here. 
I love it about watermelon up there in the booth. Teddy, I see that hand. Okay. So imagine it's a hot summer day, right? You've got a big, you know, delicious piece of watermelon in front of you and you bite into that. And the pleasure center in your brain that God created, by the way, because he created you for pleasure. He's not a killjoy. He loves pleasure. At his right hand are pleasures forever and then some, David says. So when the pleasure center in your brain lights up and you and you taste the sweetness of this and, and you get that shot of endorphins, what's supposed to happen is your heart, as, as Jonathan Edwards says, is the way, the way it's designed, the way the maker made it is it's supposed to follow the sunbeams back to the sun, back to the source, and you're supposed to get caught up in worship and say, Oh my God, this watermelon's amazing! What must God be like if He makes something this good? Right? Come on, that's right. That's the way it's supposed to work. Intimacy, sex, marriage, friends, a delicious meal, like accolades, all this good. We're not damning this stuff. It's all good stuff. God gave it to us and called it good in his word. It's all good. And it's all designed. It's it's the streams and he's the ocean. And it's all designed to pull your heart deeper into relationship with him and deeper into praise. You want to know what the problem is? The problem is that all human beings have reversed it. And we have fallen in love with the gifts instead of the giver. And the joy kill, even when you have the spirit, is that the flesh will never reach for the fruit of joy because it doesn't trust God. It will keep reaching for the stuff of earth to give you what only God can give you. Paul says it like this in Romans 1. Uh, 25. We exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things. That's the good stuff of earth, the good gifts that God's given us, rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Paul's doing something brilliant here. So keep that on the screen for a moment if you don't mind, Teddy. Look at that. What Paul's doing is he's, in, in context, he's retelling the human story. So if we leave Paragould, Arkansas, and we go back to this garden for a second, Paul's taking us back to the garden where God, and a gar, God gave us all these yeses, all this beautiful stuff to enjoy, a garden full of yeses, and he gave us one no. He put a tree in there, and he said, don't eat, don't reach for this fruit. Reach for me. Don't, don't reach for this fruit, because if you do, you're going to think you know everything. You're going to end up worshiping all this stuff, and it's going to kill you. Okay, so don't don't do that. And then a serpent, an enemy, slithers into the narrative, and we pick up the story. He tempts us. We pick up the story in chapter three, verse six. This is fascinating. Please, please hang on to this. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was what? Okay, notice it's good. Can I get real with y'all for a second? I'm going to use a word that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. This is not crystal meth. She's reaching for. It's not pornography. It's not the arms of another lover. God says she's reaching for something that is good. See, it's, it's, it's easy for us to look at those other things and condemn them. But this is the point in the story when you realize we all have dirty hands. Because we reach for good stuff instead of, instead of the God stuff, right? Like, we reach for, we reach for the creation instead of the creator. And this is what's, this is the first time you see it playing itself out. 
she reaches for the low-hanging fruit. She reaches for something that's good. Check this out. When she saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, so this is a beautiful thing, not a dark, ugly thing she's given herself to, something that's beautiful. And it's also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took the fruit and ate it, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, not protecting her, by the way, and he ate it. And immediately they realized they were naked and they were filled with shame. First time in the human story that you see us reaching for the low-hanging fruit that God says, hey, this is a good thing, but it's not meant to satisfy you. Trust me on this. And the flesh says, I don't trust you on this. So once we commit this sin, the tragic reality is the rest of the human story is us trying to cope with the stress and anxiety and pain of life, the only way the stress knows how to do it, we keep using the stuff of earth. And I say using on purpose. Because that's what we're doing. We, we become addicted to this stuff. Um, you get, you, the, the way it kills your joy is because the happiness, the happiness and the pleasure of this other stuff is always going to wear off. And so it's going to keep you coming back. And so you, you get caught in this endless addiction cycle. So instead of life, liberty, and, and joy, you get consumerism and you, get, you, get, you become a slave to the desires of the flesh. You guys have heard me quote Seth Haynes before, but I love his definition of, of addiction. And, and you know, I, got, I get the sense that like some of you, when I, when, as I'm talking about addiction here, I think some of you are like, Phew. I'm kind of glad he's not talking about me anymore, like he's just talking about somebody else. I'm, I'm actually am talking to you and to me. Gerald May says to be human is to be addict, and to be an addict is to be in need of grace. We're, if you understand the psychology of addiction, the same stuff that causes you to burn tiny rocks and spoons is the same stuff that keeps you like glued to your phone. And the psychology of it is all the same. At the root of it, it's all the same. And it's all addiction, chemically spiritually, psychologically. The Bible has another word for it, which I'll talk about in a second. Seth Haynes defines addiction like this. Addictions are nothing more than inordinate attachments. That's all it is. It's, it's a substitute love. Drugs, alcohol, food, money, gambling, gaming, sex, whatever. Fill in the blank. You can, have, you can be addicted to anything, and we are. The truth behind every addiction is that addiction is fundamentally an attachment to things that can never satisfy our deepest longing, the longing for bonded connection, for what only God can give us through his son and his spirit. So at psychology, the psychological term for it is addiction. The Bible has a word for it, and it's idolatry. It's idolatry. We heard John Piper say it a second ago. It's idolatry. When you use the stuff of earth the way it was not intended to be used and you substitute it for God himself, that's, that's addiction, that's idolatry. Psalm 16.4, let's go back to David's psalm, says the sorrows of those will increase who run after idols. Notice this is in contrast to what he says in verse 11. With God, there's fullness of joy. But if you want to keep running after the stuff of earth and worshiping it, your sorrows will increase. Now remember, all, all this is answering the question, why is it such a fight to experience this joy? Your flesh is waging war against your joy because it's running after idols. It's, it's, it's always reaching for the low-hanging fruit. And the sorrows of those who do this will 
increase. Because no matter how delicious and beautiful and good and even godly the stuff of earth is, it can never satisfy your deeper longing. And the more you use it, the more empty you will become. All this stuff about joy is really getting at the core of our identity and our mission as disciples of Jesus. As I said a moment ago, the essence of Christianity is it's an invitation to joy. The gospel is good news of great joy. And our calling as the church is to image to the world what God is like and to show the world how satisfying he is and that he's the source of joy that we're all looking for. But but God is not... Jesus is not glorified or seen as beautiful or desirable if his disciples are just as joyless and miserable and as addicted as everybody else in the world is. And I'm, I, that's me, okay, a lot of the time. That's, that's, that's the cold, hard truth. Not to mention the fact that we're missing out. We're just missing out on the life and the freedom and the joy that we were made for. This all brings me to my last question, all right? Final question. How do we then resist the flesh, and how do we resist the low-hanging fruit and reach for the higher fruit? How do we, put another way, how do we work with the Spirit to cultivate this joy that He wants to produce in our lives? Well, we said a couple of weeks ago that it's the Spirit's job to do the heavy lifting. Like, He has to produce the joy, but you and I have a role to play. And our role is that we're, we're, I can't cause the fruit to grow, but I can be a good gardener. Okay. And I can cultivate an environment that's hospitable for the Holy Spirit. And I can make a space where joy can flourish and grow. So how do you and I do that? I want to say three things and we're done quickly. Um, three steps here, practical steps on how to cultivate a space where joy can grow. Step number one, wake up. Step number two, break up. Step number three, stay up. Stay with me on this, okay? Wake up, break up, and stay up. And this is how you work with the Spirit to cultivate joy in your life. Step number one, if you're taking notes, is you have to wake up to your lesser loves. You have to wake up to your coping mechanisms. You have to wake up to your misplaced strategies. For some of you, you already know what they are. Um, You know what the low-hanging fruit is that, that you've attached to more than Jesus. But for some of you in the room, you're like... How do I know whether I'm over shopping as an addiction or a coping mechanism or whether I'm just shopping because I haven't bankrupted my family, at least not yet. Um, for some of you, you're, you're asking, how do I know if I'm addicted to social media or not or if I'm just using it? You know, I mean, like, how, how do I know whether I'm using food or drink or this relationship as, as a lesser love or a coping mechanism? I mean, I, I've, I've not gotten fall down drunk, at least not yet. I mean, how, how, do, how, do, how do we know? Well, you got to wake up. The only, the only way to know is you have to have some self-awareness. And so here's what I suggest. I suggest that you, you get alone with yourself and with God this week, and you carve out 15 to 20 minutes of alone, alone time. And everything is going to assault your, your life and keep you from doing this. But I recommend you get alone with the Spirit, and you invite the Spirit of God to meet you in that place, and you pray an adaptation of Psalm 139. You pray this and it will happen. The Spirit will do this. You pray Psalm 139. Holy Spirit, uh, search me and know me. Look into my heart, into my anxiety and pain, and see whether there are any lesser loves within me, whether I'm attached to any coping mechanisms outside of you. Wake me to this low-hanging fruit, these lesser loves, 
and lead me away from them and deeper into the love of Jesus. You pray that prayer, you pray something along those lines, ask the Spirit to search you, know you, reveal your lesser loves, and then you sit and you wait. And as things begin to surface, you write them down and you confess them. God, I'm sorry for attaching to this thing instead of attaching to you for my comfort, my security, my identity, my hope. I'm sorry for looking to these other good things that you've given me instead of looking to you to be for me what only you can be for me. I'm sorry for loving this and adoring this and desiring this more than you. And you confess that, and then you receive his love and his grace. That's the thing. Listen, again, God's an eternally, supremely happy being. He ain't mad at you. He's got more for you. So you confess, and then you receive his grace. And to be clear, this is not a one-time exercise. Like, this is, this is a way of life. This is how you proactively wake up. Let me give you, a, if I didn't say this, I, I wouldn't be loving you, but let me give you a loving warning. If you don't proactively wake up, if you don't make this right here a, a regular rhythm in your life, then, then you're, if God's merciful, you're in for a wake-up call. My, my mentor, Rich Plass, likes to say, if God's merciful, he'll send a wrecking ball. If he's merciful, if not, he'll let you keep going. Some of you are running full speed into a wake-up call because your lesser loves have outgrown you, your coping mechanisms have gotten out of control, and it's controlling your life. And you're doing everything you can to keep the wheels from falling off, and you're running full speed ahead into a wall. It'll be a very painful wake-up call for you. I promise you this. Jesus will meet you there with grace and with mercy and with love. But it doesn't have to be that way. Like, today's the day of salvation. Like, you can, you can confess this stuff now. There's, ne- there's never a wrong time to bring it into the light. Like, get into the light. Confess this stuff. Have your wake-up moment now. And not only do you need to wake up, you need to break up. That's step number two. If you want to cultivate a space where joy can grow, you have to break up with your lesser loves, which means that you're going to have to have a conversation with them. I love you, but we can't keep doing this, right? My heart wasn't made for you, so I've got to end this codependent relationship with you. I can't keep watching three, five hours of TV a day or touching my phone 2,262 times a day, or I can't keep looking at pornography, or you fill in the blank of whatever it is for you, but you're going to have to have a conversation with that idol and break up with it. And for some of you, like, let me just be, be clear, like, if your idol is like, your, if your lesser love is a spouse or a child or your job, that doesn't mean you end the relationship. You can't do that. It means that you hold it with an open hand. See, you, you can't, the good gifts that God's given you, we, you, we're not designed to hold them like this. This is grasping the fruit. You know, this is Genesis 3. I'm going to take my life in my hands. This is mine now. We, we were always designed to live like this. Jerry Sitzer, in his book about losing his wife, mom, and daughter all in the same car accident, says that he was having a fight with God one day, and he said, I didn't deserve this. I didn't deserve for them to be taken away from me. And he said, the Spirit whispered gently with, with very tender mercy, not a shame on you, very tender mercy, the Spirit whispered in his heart, you didn't deserve this. You didn't deserve to lose them. You also never deserved to have them. 
whatever God has given you in your life, family, job, career, it's all gift. It's all grace. You don't deserve to lose it. You never deserved to have it. It's all grace. So the trick, the key to joy is learning to hold that stuff with an open hand. God, my goodness, it's a, it's a fight. I'm telling you, it's a fight and it's a lifelong battle, but you get, this is the way you fight for joy. You hold it with an open hand. And then when it's taken from you, you're, nothing will take your joy from you because it can't take your Jesus from you. But this stuff can be taken from you. Is this, is this clear? Okay, this stuff can be taken from you. So the, the key to enjoying God's gifts is you don't worship them. Because <laughs> if you worship them, they'll eat your lunch. If I worship my kids and there's, there's sports accolades or what they go on to achieve or whatever, the bottom's going to fall out from underneath my life when they disappoint me, and they will. When your God fails you, your hope is dashed against the rocks. At least in that moment it is. So you got to break up with this stuff. you got to hold it with an open hand. And for some of you, breaking up with it does mean like you need to put some habits to death. For some of you, it's like some illegal stuff that you got to stop doing. For some of you, it's like you need 12 steps. You need in treatment. You need to go to your DNA group today and say, I have a problem. Listen to me. The time to wake up is now. So for some of you, this is, this is the question is, and I can't answer it. Holy Spirit, what's the low-hanging fruit you're calling me to let go of and break up with? But first, you got to wake up to it because sometimes we don't even see it. Wake up, break up. Lastly, if you want to cultivate a space where joy can grow in your life, you better find a way to stay up. Stay awake. The Bible calls this process of, of, of being numbed by the stuff of earth, of turning to idols. It likens it to being asleep. And you see this all over the New Testament. Here's one example. Paul says, So then, let us not be like others who are asleep. Let us stay awake and be sober-minded. The goal of the Christian life is to live awake to God's presence, where there is fullness of joy. To live awake to the joy and the pleasure that's found in His love for us in Jesus. I mean... The psalmist, David says it like this, and we'll, 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 we'll end here. David says it like this. To go back to Psalm 16 again, verse 8 and 10. This is staying awake. I have set the Lord always before me, always consciously connected to and aware of Jesus' presence. Because he is at my right hand, I have an identity and a joy that can't be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad My whole entire being rejoices. Even my body dwells secure. What brings joy to your whole being? What heals the pain and trauma and anxiety held in the body? It's learning to live consciously connected to and aware of God's presence. Which, if you're in Christ, lives inside of you through His Spirit. Paul says in Romans 13, 11, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is near. I think we can put that verse on the screen. Romans 13, 11, wake up from your slumber because our salvation is near. When Paul talks about salvation, he's talking about Jesus. 
and the hope we have in the gospel. The good news is the gospel proves that God cares way more, infinitely more about your joy than even you do. I have had so many people as a pastor say that they want to justify their sin by saying, doesn't God want me to be happy? And my response is, yeah, you were created to be happy, but not like this. God cares way more about your happiness than you do, and he will stop at nothing to give it to you. Hebrews 12.2 says, It was for the joy set before Jesus that he endured the cross on our behalf. What motivated Jesus to go to the cross for us? His own joy for you. And his, his own anger and desire to share his joy with you. Jesus came to put his joy in you so that your joy may be complete. This is the hope that we have. 